Welcome to a special bonus episode of Public Power Underground. This is the third episode in a series on electric market enthusiasm. I'm joined by Frank Wolak, the Holbrook Working Professor of Commodity Price Studies in the Department of Economics at Stanford University, who also works as the Director of the Program on Energy and Sustainable Development. Professor Wolak specializes in energy and environmental economics, regulatory economics, and econometric Theory. Professor Wolak, welcome to Public Power Underground. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm excited to have you. I hope the enthusiasm comes through. Is it coming yep, through? It is. It is. Okay. Let me give you a round of applause, too. Well, thank you. Yes. Excited to have you here. Um, I, I, in going through this, uh, it seems to me like you're an expert. I'm an enthusiast. You're an expert. I read through the, the bio on Stanford's website, and it notes, I didn't know this before reading through it, that you were the chair of the Market Surveillance Committee of the California Independent System Operator from January 1st, 1998 to March 31st, 2011. Some interesting times. Any comments? So those oh, were interesting oh, times. Oh, very much. Uh, I, 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 uh, in, in hindsight, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, uh, at, at the time, there was certainly a lot of, uh, as you said, uh, very interesting times. Um, I certainly, one of the things I learned was um, we need to do as economists a much better job of teaching politicians basic economics. Uh, the, the, the other thing I learned is that we as economists also working in this area need to teach our colleagues a bit more about how the legal structure works in the energy sector. In other words, things like the Federal Power Act and all of the ba basic requirements of that. Um, and, um, you know, those, so, but, but it was a, a, a great experience in terms of, uh, uh, I got to meet, uh, I think um, every governor and every Senator from every Western <laughs> state during the uh, California crisis period. So that was, uh, that was also a lot of fun. Yeah, not all sunshine and unicorns, some difficult times. And the system, I think you spoke to it a little bit, the system is like this complicated mixture of legal structures, policy structures and policy choices and physics, right? Physics yeah. and engineering are also like important components to this structure. Uh and but also but like equally complex is the legal frameworks that we all operate on. And we're gonna get into it. The market design rules are also a very important component of all how all this fits together, aren't they? Uh, yes, uh, I think one of the contributions that uh, I think economists working in this area have made is the, the dictum that I like to repeat to any engineer that will listen, which is when incentives change, behavior changes. Uh, one of the things that we, in the early days of the ISO, we would be in the control room there and many of the engineers that worked um, there were former employees of say PG&E or Southern California Edison and many of the operators of the facilities that were sold off and now operated by different firms were also former employees of, of the, the company and the operators in the ISO would say we never operated that unit that way what's wrong with these people and he would <laughs> You know, my retort was always, yes, you weren't compensated in the way that they were compensated. Uh, uh, and that's why their behavior is different. And uh, that's what makes, at least for economists, this, this area a lot of fun because high-powered incentives are in play and people respond to them. 
Yes, and we're going to get into a lot here, uh, including your energy market game that I think we're going to dive a little bit into, which I think does a little bit is explaining this incentive structure and how it can change market dynamics. We're going to talk about fixed price forward contracting, price formation under deep decarbonization. But I wanted to start the conversation with your working paper that was published in 2021, I believe. It is titled Long-Term Resource Adequacy in Wholesale Electric Markets with Significant Intermittent Renewables. And it was published as part of the National Bureau of Economic Research Working Paper Series. I'm going to include some citation in the show notes because I liked it. I, I just started copying the citation of these types of works. Does that work for you? Uh, sure. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, uh, it's subsequently been published in a journal, but that's fine. Oh, but yeah, if you it, got the new citation, I just follow the threads. It's where I found it. But if you oh, got yeah, a new sure, citation, send it, it along. Just, uh, the easiest way is just Google Scholar the title and it'll come up with where it's published. Google Scholar, something I don't use very much, but yeah. I'm going to start using it. I'll figure it out. Okay. So uh, I, write, I wrote a lead for this working paper, for this published paper, published article. Uh, are you ready for my like my like punched up lead of what the, what's going on here? Uh, sure. Okay. Frank Wolak has an answer to the conundrum of how to deal with resource adequacy in electric markets with high penetration of intermittent resources. Professor Wolak considers capacity-based long-term resource adequacy programs through the lens of the August 2020 outages in California, and he evaluates energy-only markets with, high, with a high price cap in light of the February 2021 power supply shortfall in Texas. His answer looks a lot like replicating full requirements contracts into a market paradigm, and it might just end up as a winner for consumers in a way markets predicated on scarcity events aren't. And lead. What do you think? Uh, I mean, I'll, 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 uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take most of it. Uh, what, what, I, don't, what, what don't I, you like? I, if I can make a few friendly amendments. That's but, absolutely um, the whole point of this. Yeah. So, I mean, the big thing I would say is that um, the capacity-based paradigm, I think um, if it was, uh, the, the way I like to joke among uh, my academic colleagues is uh, capacity payment mechanism is the electricity market equivalent of tenure. I get paid to breathe. And that is not exactly a very high-powered incentive for me. Okay. And okay. the other is, is that I would argue that we, in all other markets that we operate, um, we design the market for the benefit of consumers and figure that suppliers are smart enough to figure out how to make their money supplying the product that consumers want. In the case of capacity markets, I would pay not to have power plants, particularly ones built near my house, but I will pay for electricity 24-7 when I want it. And so... What, we, what we've done with the electricity markets is I think because of the structure that it is, uh, you know, a, uh, we have this regulatory oversight at the federal and state level, we've in some sense designed the market to the benefit of the suppliers when in Ooh. fact markets should be designed for the benefit of the consumers. Now, when you layer on top of that, the fact that we've got a lot of intermittent resources, the paradigm on which the capacity payment mechanism is built, meaning that we all have these units that are dispatchable, and you can turn them on when you want them to turn on, except for the fact that they may fail. And we think that failures are sort of independent events across uh, generation units. Uh, we can 
sensibly think of, okay, given that these are a bunch of independent events, how much capacity of this variety do we need in order to make sure we can keep the lights on? Well, if you switch to renewables, the one characteristic of renewables is the fact that there is tremendous contemporaneous correlation between the output that they produce. In other words, it's a sunny day in California, we get lots of solar. It's yep. a windy day, we get lots of wind. But if it's not, we get very little. In, in other words, it's very highly correlated and moreover, not dispatchable. That says that this paradigm really doesn't fit this renewable um, energy dominated market. And that's really the purpose of what the mechanism is about. So it's like a par- we've experienced a paradigm shift in our market and our market mechanisms aren't that we need a new paradigm shift in how we form this market and compensate this instead of a, a capacity payment worked under the old paradigm, at least a little bit. Tenured professors yeah, yeah, are great. Yeah, I, mean, you know? I, w- I would say I would say that it, it was designed for a paradigm that we're moving away from there we and go. that we would prefer. Uh, it, but it the other is, is that I would also argue it was a very expensive way to achieve what we would like to achieve. And my argument is that what we want is we want the industry to be financially viable, but we also want to benefit consumers from the restructuring process. If it was just a case of keeping the lights on, uh, it would be quite simple. Just pay uh, the generators, uh, the you know, monopoly rents and be done with it. But um, what we're trying to do is squeeze out these inefficiencies, benefit consumers relative to the former regime. And I think it's always important to keep your eye on that ball in the sense of, look, uh, we've got to benefit consumers. That's what we're shooting for. That, so you're speaking to public power here where public power's primary driver is value-added services for our customers. So in a lot of these instances, I think you talk to regulators who are trying to make, make sure protection of the consumers. That's our whole mission of public power. This is, this is, our, this is what we're trying to do. So I'm very excited about getting into this, this concept uh, that you proposed in the pe- paper on standardized fixed price forward contracts. But before we do, I did want to pull from the uh, your article a couple things. First is your diagnosis of the missing money problem. So you have some narrative in the paper on the missing money problem. And you have maybe a different angle on it that's centered on your concept of a reliability externality. Can you talk a little bit about reliability externalities and how that, how maybe the missing money problem is a symptom of the reliability externality? Uh, sure. No, thank you. Uh, I, it, it, um, it's really pleasing to see that you really caught what I view as a very important uh, point. I'll just go uh, ahead and pat myself on the back and give myself some applause. Feel yeah. free. Yeah, yeah. Feel there, free we go. there we go. Break your arm, patting yourself on your back. Uh, definitely. You. So, yeah, it's it's um, the, the idea is that there's often this I, that you hear the story of, oh, there's a missing money problem because we won't, uh, we cap the short-term price. And my argument is that that's an incomplete at best um, story of what's going on, because if what we instead do is, um, if it ignores the fact that there is a forward market out there and that what's really going on is the fact that we have what I would like to call this reliability externality, meaning that Um, With that cap on the short-term market, we create the following incentive, which is that 
I, as a retailer, or as a large customer, I know I'm never going to have to pay higher than that capped price for my electricity. So my incentive to essentially hedge my expected demands or my demands for energy are, are essentially limited by the fact that I know that I don't have to pay beyond that price. But the problem is, is that there's no guarantee that in the short-term market um, that there will be a sufficient supply at that price to meet the demand that is out there. And this is where the externality aspect comes in because of the fact that that can happen. And when that happens, uh, what's going to be the case is I can't curtail the people that failed to procure what they need uh, in terms of their demand. Right. I can only randomly curtail people through rolling blackouts. Yeah. And because of the fact that it's random curtailment, rolling blackouts, punishing everyone, every, the, all the people recognize that and they say, I don't bear the full cost of my failure to procure um, adequate supplies in the forward market. And so what you get is you, you, you essentially get this, this uh, under, if you like, under hedging, which then is self-fulfilling. And the interesting thing that I would always uh, say about, say, the ERCOT market versus the California market is people would say, well, ERCOT solves that problem because it has the $9,000 offer cap. And my response would always be, no, all they've done in ERCOT versus California, which has a $1,000 megawatt hour offer cap, is they've just reduced the probability that it will occur, but it, will st it still is non-zero event that will occur. And sure enough, February 2021 was that very, very small probability event where there was insufficient supply offered in at or above uh, the um, at excuse me, at the offer cap to meet the demand because of the extreme weather event. So the as, as I try to say, this missing money problem is a symptom of the fact that you have not adequately addressed the reliability externality. That is the role of a long-term resource adequacy mechanism to ensure that you have in place a mechanism that will uh, 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 essentially guarantee that suppliers will meet demand in all hours of the year. So when I talked to Professor Jacob Mays, uh, he, he kind of framed this as well as, well, I, I'll, I'll paraphrase, that there are competitive markets with incomplete trading risk, and these externalities ends up as, it's an incompletion of risk trading, uh, which ends up driving these, uh, I don't know, the right uh, derogatory word to use to describe uh, outcomes. Well, the, 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 I guess the way I'd, I'd, I'd sort of put a finer point on it, I would argue that it, it, it essentially says we're, we're, we're essentially socializing the risk of a supply shortfall in the aggregate. And because of that, I mean, if, for example, if what was true is that the system operator could effectively selectively curtail each customer based upon what they're buying versus what they hedged, um, then that externality problem would be cured uh, and, and people would have an incentive to buy enough because they know they would bear the full cost, everybody else would get served, they wouldn't get served. But because of the fact that we don't have yet the technology to do that, um, you know, there is this incentive to lean on the short-term market. Or another way to think about it is that being an electricity retailer 
and buying all of your energy to serve your customers out of the short-term market is a great idea and very profitable 99% of the time or 99.99% of the time is the case in ERCOT, except for that 0.1% of the time when it's not. And it's really not as the customers of the retailers like Gritty found out when they were paying, you know, thousands of dollars for their electricity bill. So it, it you know, but that is the fundamental problem is, is, you know, we, we need to essentially, we can't rely on pure market forces because we've got this offer cap on the short-term market to essentially discipline people into buying what they need in advance. That is the, the role of the long-term resource adequacy mechanism, in my view. Okay. Well, we're going to get into a little bit more about your the, the long-term resource adequacy program and those mechanisms that could work. But I did want to take a second diversion before we get into the standardized fixed price forward contract concept curtailing exports. So in your paper, you've got this robust discussion of the August 2020 event in California um, and lessons to take from it on the shortcomings of California's capacity-based long-term resource adequacy program. I think that's the right phrasing. But you discuss in this paper that was published in July of 2021 that a possible response could be suspending exports from the state in scarcity events. Your commentary ends with, quote, for this reason, suspending exports is likely to have adverse long-term energy supply consequences for an import-dependent region like California, unquote. Please go on. Uh, can you unpack this a little bit for us for those outside of Kaiso's region who uh, uh, maybe think similarly, I guess? Well, the, the, the simple way to think about it is, is that I call this the curse of import dependence. And yes. what the curse of import dependence means is that if you want electricity and you are a net importer, you're going to have to pay the highest price of anybody else if you want to get those imports during scarcity events. And so uh, if what you do is you establish a precedent of we're going to curtail exports when there are scarcity events in California, guess what's going to, at least what I think is going to happen is that when importers expect scarcity events to occur in California, they are not going to schedule into the state in the day ahead market because they're fearful they're going to get curtailed, which is going to make your reliability problem in California even worse. You just have to you know, you just have to recognize that, look, we're import dependent. What you would likely instead do is say, we need to buy in advance to make sure that we have sufficient uh, imports coming in. But if in, in real time, uh, you know, you start curtailing exports because people see a better price outside California, they're not going to schedule into California in the first place. And that's going to just push your reliability problem uh, to the day ahead market. Uh, which, you know, I don't, you know, it, to me, it, it, it both seem uh, uh, very challenging. The better idea is just simply to recognize that, look, as an import net importer, we need to be stand ready to pay what it takes to get those additional imports in if we actually need them, rather than to say we're going to curtail because people don't have to schedule in California in the first place. And so you're going to have a lot of people not wanting to schedule into California, sell power to California, which is not what you want if you're dependent on imports for roughly, you know, 25, 30% of your energy. 
Well, I will leave it to the listener to uh, ascertain for themselves whether that is the experience of after this export uh, policy has gone into effect. But we're ready to move on to the main event. Are you ready for the main event? This is what we're here actually to discuss. This is the the heart of the paper. You ready? Sure. So but you- I guess on this on this topic, just the last topic, we the good news at least is since August of 2020, we we have not seen the sort of scarcity event where we'd expect that to happen. So uh, we'll stand by. Stand. But I was just wanted to comment on that. Stand by. Stand by. Okay. So uh, the long-term resource attitude framework you're proposing in this paper and, and have some exposition around is the standardized fixed price forward contract market auction that I'm going to interpret as a market auction that's kind of analogous to a market for auctioning off full requirements contracts, where the sell side is Genco's and the buy side is electric retailers. Is that a fair synthesis of the concept? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a very fair synthesis, given that that's basically a parallel that I draw in the last section of the paper to talk about, you know, a sort of poor man's version of this is what exists in places like Chile and uh, 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 Peru, and they have managed to keep the lights on for, in, in the case of Chile, for you know more than 30 years uh, uh, effectively with this kind of mechanism, because what it does is it essentially assigns the risk of supply shortfalls to the entities that are best able to deal with it, which are generators. And uh, it, it essentially, uh, you know, whereas if what we do is pretend like loads can actually be flexible, and they're not flexible, uh, and it, it, it good good things don't happen. Yeah, good things don't happen uh, if you're assuming load. If your last resort, if your reliability externality includes the curtailment of load. Um, so there's two things from the paper that I wanted to highlight, and, and then we can dig a little bit deeper. First, a little paraphrasing par- paraphrasing from section five. Quote, the mechanism implies that all expected profit-maximizing suppliers would like to minimize the cost of meeting their hourly fixed price formation contract, forward contract obligation, the sum of which equals the hourly system demand for all hours of the year. And second, quoting from section 5.4, because all suppliers know that all energy consumed every hour of the year Uh, is covered, there is a strong incentive for suppliers to find the least cost mix of intermittent and controllable resources to serve these hourly demands, unquote. So in my my, my enthusiastic dive into electric markets, one of the takeaways I've kind of uh, started to resolve around is that resource by resource capacity accreditation breaks down under deep decarbonization because of the intermittent resources. And it's going to take a portfolio approach to quote, have adequate energy available to serve realized demand all hours of the year, unquote. That's from your paper. I thought that was a really good summary of really the task at hand. So let's start there. It seems like this approach is really good as a portfolio approach to capacity markets. Can you dig a little bit deeper into that and whether that, whether you agree with my framework that um, the portfolio approach is really important in, in markets with a lot of intermittent resources. Yeah, I'd, I'd say a portfolio approach is very important, except for the modifier capacity, since essentially the, 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 the idea is that the, quote, reliable capacity of a solar resource is zero if when the peak demand is when it's dark outside, 
Similarly, the reliable capacity is zero for a wind resource if when it, outside there's, there's no wind. And so this construct, if you ask me, makes, makes very little sense. Now, we dress it up in a lot of engineering calculations that, that, that sort of try to make something uh, rigorous but but you know I think that just that just uh, sort of um, you know gives you a very false sense of security. The bottom line, it, it, at least the way I see it, is that um, what you need is essentially financial instruments between suppliers that effectively make sure that the physical supply will be there. So to take an example of, I am a a renewable resource owner, I might sign a contract with a, a peaker unit um, that essentially says, I'm going to pay you a fixed amount of money, but I need you to ensure that during particularly the hours that I know I produce very little energy, say the early morning and late evening hours, um, you're going to provide me with the hedge against very high short-term prices. How do you provide that as the peaker? Well, you stand ready to turn on to supply energy then, and, and you then could perhaps turn off in the day and then turn on again later in the day. And so the idea is really getting the entire array of resources that exist in the market to effectively focus on filling the load, you know, load curve for all 8,760 8, hours of the year. And that's what we want everyone to be focused on. This idea of, you know, once I've sold my capacity, um, you know, I, I get to do whatever I want. Uh, I just don't think that works in a market in which you have a lot of intermittent renewables. Whereas, you know, if what you have is this, this, this mandate that says all generators, you have sold all the energy forward necessary to meet demand in each hour, and you all know that you've all sold forward all the energy necessary to meet demand in each hour of the year, then everybody's focused on making sure that's true. And that is what we, we want to happen. And I think that's what will put in place uh, uh, the incentives for it to happen. So well, to kind of help me understand and think through this concept, it, it's basically because you have independent system operators today, which have this portfolio of resources, but because of the incentives of those resources and the risk sharing of those resources, you don't get this behavior that you would in a different construct. Is that kind of the idea that instead of disaggregated generators bidding in, you have a risk allocation to a uh, a Genco with a portfolio of resources, so they, they have an obligation to manage that risk? Well, the, a better way to say it is the following, is, is one of the things that forward contracts do that is really underappreciated and very sadly so, since this is a point I've been making for more than 20 years to any regulator that will listen, is that if you have a fixed price forward contract for energy as a generator, your revenue stream is fixed for at least the quantity for the quantity of energy that you've sold in that fixed price forward contract. Meaning, what have I done? For at least that quantity of energy, I have turned you in to having the same incentives as load. You oh, okay. want the cost of supplying that quantity of energy be to be as low as possible. And you have two options for supplying it. You can either, you can either supply it from your own resources 
or you can buy it from the short-term market and essentially then sell it to uh, uh, the retail customer. And so what does this mean? Well, how do I make that efficient make-buy decision for the quantity of energy I've sold in the forward market? Very simple. I bid my marginal cost for each resource that is capable, uh, the, my cheapest resources, obviously, my, my marginal cost for those resources, because why? Because if the market clearing price is below the marginal cost of my resource, I'd prefer to get it from the market. If the marginal, sorry, the other way around. It, it, that, no, I, it, sorry, let me say it again. If the market clearing price is below the marginal cost of my resource, I want to buy it out of the short-term market. Okay. If the market clearing price is above, I want to supply it from my unit. That make-buy decision occurs by bidding my marginal cost because the way markets work is that I get dispatches, my price is above, uh, if the price is above my marginal cost that I bid in, and I don't get dispatched if that's not true. And that is the really uh, the, the essence of behind the statement that I'm making of each supplier has this incentive to essentially make the efficient make-buy decision. And if everybody is, if demand is fully contracted, then it's basically saying collectively everyone has this incentive to supply in a least cost manner. And, um, you know, that's, that's the best we can hope for. So, Whereas with the capacity market, I've just bought your capacity and then you can offer whatever you want for your energy, as long as it is below the offer cap on the short-term market. And, you know, the analogy I like to draw to that is the capacity market is guaranteeing that the airplane flies, but it's not guaranteeing that you have a seat. And if you want to get a seat, you got to pay what the market will bear for that seat. What, what we're doing with this mechanism is we're saying you're buying the seat in advance and, and you get to fly. Uh, I really like this concept of the efficient, efficient make buy decision. So in my trying to make this make sense to Paul. So dear listeners, sorry for that. So you have this uh, in the paper, you talk about Chile and I want to say Brazil. Is that, are those the two? Uh, it's uh, Peru. Chile and Peru have similar mechanisms, but in my, as I was reading through this, it seemed a little bit like in the bilateral market we have today with Bonneville and these other market operators, it's almost similar to the, um, the construct they engage in the market under because Bonneville has these contracts, the regional dialogue contracts that the customers pay the obligations of the system. And then they go economize the buy sell decision to fulfill that obligation at the least cost. Right. So in some ways, it's a similar parallel to the structure like under Bonneville contracts that we have today. It's just broadening that out. Is that a way to think about it? Uh, well, yeah, except the thing is, is that, I mean, the big thing to, that, that, is, that makes it a bit more challenging is, um, is, is the fact that you, you, one way to think about it is, is, and this is probably, I'd argue, the fault of economists because we drop the aggregate supply curve, we drop the aggregate demand curve, we cross them when we say that's the market clearing price. But um, the thing is, is that if what you're doing is buying everything on the short-term market at the short-term price, and you have a number of suppliers that have you know, a significant amount of capacity, it, the temptation for them to effectively offer high 
is 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 quite um, quite okay. strong. And as we saw in California in, in, in you know in 2000, 2001, and virtually every market where you uh, allow a, a few market participants to get significant net long positions, which means they actually are selling way more electricity than they have sold in a forward contract, you run into these problems. I mean, it's the classic, what we would call market power problem. So what you're trying to do it, with this mechanism and what the full requirements contract mechanism does in Chile and Peru is it says, look, we know that when the short-term market comes, if you own generation with unloaded capacity, there is virtually no limit to what you can ask for and get paid because everyone wants to keep the lights on. Yep. So what we're going to do is we're going to say that customers buy from you essentially full requirements, meaning that they're on the hook for the full quantity you demand, but they bought it from you at a fixed price. And so the only entities that essentially face this short-term price risk are generators and sometimes generator one is short, other times generator two is short. And so, you know, yeah, they can spike the price on their competitor and their competitor can spike the price on them, but the lights stay on and consumers are served at a reasonable price. That's that's the idea. So in like my Northwest lens, this is almost like all participants in the market have a similar desire to economize the Buy, uh, what, make buy decision similar to what the motives of Bonneville are is to have the lowest cost to, to economize those purchases and sales. But you're doing it for all participants in the market instead of just the one or two or three that have that motive. Yes. And the important thing to bear in mind is uh, one way to think about it is that what we've done in, in all the markets historically is we've said you start out with a zero hedge and you decide how much you want to hedge up. But that has the risk that we saw in California, in Texas, and interestingly enough, even more recently in Australia, Australia is experiencing a very similar event to what happened in California and what happened in Texas right now. So- In Australia, I know this from your paper, it's got an even higher offer cap. Yeah, exactly. It's got the highest in the world, like 15,000. Australian dollars, yes. Okay. And so so what my argument is, is look, we, we, what we want to do is start with load being 100% hedged. And if you think that you have flexibility, you can buy out of that hedge. But you, know, you buy out of the hedge um, by the fact that you have flexible node, not that you say, let's start at zero and have people hedge up, because we know if you start at zero and have people hedge up, you have this reliability externality that ensures that no one will completely hedge up. And so, you know, you're, 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 you're stuck in, in the circumstances that we see in all markets where we uh, ignore this. Well, that's a, a good pivot because, uh, I, you know, I started with this, this uh, statement that one of the conclusions I've come to is that a capacity-based long-term resource adequacy paradigm fails under deep decarbonization. I, and I, I got some of this started with this uh, based on the work by Professor Jacob Mays, who wrote a paper on how capacity markets have an asymmetric effect on the risk profile of different generation technologies, tilting the resource mix towards those with lower fixed costs and higher operating costs. And the the specific insight 
that I latched onto is that the way you design the markets and credit resources influences the resources that are deployed. And this is an area your concept addresses, and you pointed me towards, quote, the energy market game as a way to test this hypothesis. Could you talk about this game that you you and your team have developed and, and how the experiences you've had with uh, testing your hypothesis and testing the behavior different given different market paradigms with the game? Sure, yeah. So what we've done in our game is we've basically, um, over the past 10 years, we've developed uh, a, a sort of, the, the joke I like to tell is a, um, a, a web-based game that has everything in that the real world has, except that we can, uh, you know, we can set a, you know, $200 price of carbon and not destroy the California economy, <laughs> or, you know, we, uh, we, you know, the power doesn't flow, but everything else is just like in the real world. There's generators, there's retailers, there's even consumers, there's a carbon market, there's renewables that are intermittent, there's financial transmission rights, there's Essentially, there's transmission constraints, huh? Transmission constraints, transmission constraints as well. And so, what we do with this game, the neat thing that we can do is we can play this game under the same identical system conditions, but with different market rules. And so, one of the things we've done with the game is we have run effectively a uh, where where we say, all right, let's do a capacity market-based long-term resource adequacy mechanism in the game, and let's do this standardized fixed-price forward contract uh, view of the game. And so, for the capacity market version, we start and do just like what they do in the eastern markets, where there is an auction for firm capacity, and then for all the resources, they get assigned a firm capacity value. And okay. after you find out how much you win in the auction, you have to build at least as much resources to meet your firm capacity obligation. Um, and you can build more, but but basically just like the, the, the market, you build them. And then you play the, uh, uh, the, the same game uh, where you bid those in, you serve demand, all the sorts of stuff that happens to the real market. And then what we do is we compute what is the total cost to serve load? Meaning, what did consumers pay for capacity payments? What did they pay for energy? Uh, what did they pay for any forward contracts that might have been negotiated? And we get an average cost of load. Then for the energy market, the game where we play it with the standardized fixed price forward contracts, we do the same thing. It's just that the initial auction is that they auction off these volume of energy. And this volume of energy that clears against the load weighted, the, the you know, the period level uh, weights of load. So in other words, peak period has a higher weight, off peak period, lower weight, et cetera. We have periods within the day uh, uh, that that occurs. And then after everybody finds out how much they win in these standardized fixed price forward contracts, they're free to build generation units. Okay. There's no requirement that they build units or anything. It's just that we, we tell the students that, look, you know, remember, uh, if you don't meet demand, then there will be price spikes and it will be extremely expensive for you. Um, and um, so, you know, you know, but but and typically they almost always build. Uh, well, they always in all the times we've run it build sufficient resources. We've never had these so-called scarcity events because they know that they've sold the energy forward and they know that 
there will be outages of their unit. They know that there will be intermittency in the renewables. So they take the appropriate precautions in terms of what they build. And then what we do for this game is we play it through same conditions in terms of renewables, everything the same. We get a total cost to serve load under that game. And every time we've done this comparison with, we did it with uh, Western States regulators. Um, we've done it with um, Stanford Graduate School of Business School students. We've done it with um, regulators from Brazil. They were interested in thinking about a bid-based market. The uh, standardized fixed price forward contract approach always yields significantly lower cost to consumers. And the simple idea is that paradigm that we talked about with respect to the airplane, is that the capacity market guarantees the airplane exists and it flies, but it doesn't guarantee that you get served unless you're willing to pay what the airline is charging for seats. Whereas in the standardized fixed price forward contract, you are buying seats in advance at, at, a, at a competitive price and the airline is building necessary or running the necessary planes to serve those seats and that, as I said, typically leads to the favorable make-buy decision in terms of how folks offer into that short-term market that does not exist in the capacity payment paradigm. So part of why I think this is such an intriguing way is because in a lot of ways, your strategy for bidding is to maximize your incentives. And this does a great job of incorporating those different strategies and testing those different strategies with different people uh, in, a, in a game where you can analyze the outcomes. Have you, so you've mentioned the different stakeholders that you've engaged with um, and, and trained with. Uh, any interest in coming to the Pacific Northwest and maybe uh, running through some gaming mechanisms? Do you, should, I, should I call all my friends and see if they want to get together? Uh, yeah, we're, we're always interested in trying to, I mean, my business is education. And uh, so we're always, one of the big challenges to me of making this uh, uh, sort of paradigm work is stamping out all the misconceptions that exist. And one of the things that's, I think, very important to bear in mind is you know, this is the, the folks that get appointed to be regulators uh, and, um, you know, often aren't the people with the greatest amount of expertise in the area, uh, which is just a, a fact of reality. But, you know, getting everybody to understand a, a, the same sets of, uh, of logic and have talked to one another about it um, and, and, and seen it in action together is a very powerful way uh, to make sure that um, we can move forward because to move forward, we're gonna need a lot of cooperation across states. Uh, my favorite example of this is um, California, very ambitious renewable energy goals. Um, you can build wind resources in California with the capacity factor probably very aggressive 25%. In Wyoming, you can build wind resources with capacity factors north of 40 to 45%. Um, that's almost double the energy per hour for the same capacity. The next is, is that where do you think it's cheaper to build that uh, wind resource in Wyoming, where there is as many people in the entire state as live between San Francisco and San Jose? It, it's, it's sort of a no brainer. So, but, What's essential to make that happen? Well, we got to have transmission 
yep. that essentially gets that power from Wyoming to California, which means you got to cross neighboring states. This means we need to really have regional coordination. We need all the regulators to understand, you know, the, the, this logic. And that's one of the big roles of these courses that we try, we teach is to get everyone on the same page, understanding we don't, we don't really have an ax to grind. Uh, and just to give you an example, there have been many times in some of these meetings where we've had stakeholders from the industry and they accuse, I've been accused of being anti-market, which um, only because what the economist we say is anti-market. Yeah, <laughs> only because what we say is the, the basic, uh, the metaphor I like to use is, look, markets are like fire, is that if you can control it, it can keep you warm, it can provide light. But if you don't control it and understand it, it can burn your house down. And so what we're trying to do in these programs is teach you how to use fire in the most productive manner or market mechanisms in the most productive manner. Because those market mechanisms can determine the behavior of the resources within the market. That's one of my key takeaways that I got from your paper, from doing this enthusiasm with markets uh, series, is that like how you incentivize the behavior, you, you started with this, we'll, we'll at least start transitioning out with it, that how you incentivize the behavior will, will dictate how your prices get formed within the market. That, uh, am, I, am, I, am I getting yeah, close? Yeah, and this just goes back to a point that I think that, again, was a, many, many uh, consumers and politicians were sold a bill of goods, which was, will markets do better than regulation? To me, that is a content-free statement, is the answer to that statement is yes and no. And what it depends upon is how you do it. And so the bigger question is, how do you get it right? How do you, how do you, how do you essentially uh, you know, capture the incentives that a market can provide uh, and, and capture as much as possible, those benefits for consumers, that's really what the issue is, not whether, you know, this question of, oh, should you do it, have a market or should you have regulation? You, you can do it badly or you can do it well in both instances. What you want to do is do it the best you can, uh, uh, it, it, you know, if, if, when you, if you make the decision to transition to market, which means designing that market to benefit consumers because suppliers can take care of themselves. They're, yes. they're pretty smart and highly, mo highly motivated to take care of themselves. So that's a great transition because it, so the Pacific Northwest is considering these this incrementaling our way into markets. Um, so I'm a power manager at a small electric utility, public power, who is whose business and mission is to add value for our customers. So do you have advice uh, in light of your insights for some as we as we go through this incrementaling into the next iteration of like a day ahead market and resource adequacy programs, it, it, do you have like an electric design advice for us? Yeah, I mean the 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 point that I like to make to people throughout the West is you already exist in a market. There yes. are trades that occur all throughout the West. They are just extremely opaque. And you have no idea if you're getting a great deal. And part of the reason that you think you're getting a great deal, and you probably are getting a great deal, is because of contracts you signed many years ago <laughs> and, and resources that you built many years ago. Uh, but those are essentially sunk costs. Uh, and unfortunately, probably less so for the Pacific Northwest, but certainly for the rest of the WEC, is that most of those resources are things you'd like to get rid of, like coal and you know old you know single cycle natural gas resources. And so, 
if what you're thinking of is trying to transition to a more renewable uh, uh, and you know intermittent renewable heavy resource mix, it, to me, it's a no-brainer. Uh, the market, you know, going forward in this this uh, transparent market with the appropriate safeguards in place is going to be a much better deal for your customers. If you don't plan to do that, and if you, you know, still want to stay with the coal that you got, you want to run that plant for as long as possible, then yeah, you, that, that is a better way to go. But I, I would expect many of your customers are not exactly uh, keen on that. So uh, I, the big point I, I would make is that, you know, that, that yes, I think taking it slow is a good idea, but, but and focus on the endpoint. But I, I think you have to um, recognize that doing nothing is doing something in the sense of, you know, you're in a market and it, 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 if what you're saying is we want to transition uh, to a large amount of renewables, not in a you know, broader market, that's going to be much more expensive than if you don't, if you try to do it in a, you know, a broader market. Well, thank you for the advice. That I think was a good synthesis of the conversation. Uh, but before we go, are any papers coming up, books that we should be on the lookout for? Anything other than you're gonna? We're, I'm gonna try to get a class together of the Pacific Northwest people to uh, do with the energy market game. Any any books? Any papers? Anything else to promote? Um, well, yeah. I mean, one one thing I would say is uh, I recently uh, completed with a, uh, a a a research assistant of mine a book. It's called "The Future of Electricity Retailing and How We Get There," and um, it it was recently published by um, uh, Springer. But it, the idea, and really the whole intent of that is, is that electricity retailing I think has gotten a bad name in the sense of people and policymakers not recognizing what I think is its essential role in the energy transition and the need for a significant paradigm shift in how we uh, uh, think about electricity retailing and the role, I guess what I would argue is uh, of retail uh, competition in, in making a lot of what we're interested in happening happen. So that would be my my plug is is that um, it, it it sort of gives a summary of what's happening in that sector globally to the extent we were able, and then kind of gives a roadmap for where we 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 think it's going. Well, I'm I'm here for the pitch, and I really like that. We're we're electric utility enthusiasts here. We uh, we've talked about the importance of utilities in the transition and how we can be uh, you know part of the engine that moves us towards an electrified future, and how that can help us with all sorts of uh, various socioeconomic issues. Uh, and we're all we're here for it. We're, we want to be part of the transition, part of the solution, right? Okay. Yep. Nope. That's good. That's good. Yes. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it, you know, and again, it's the, 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 I guess the other point that I'd leave with is that uh, the one thing that I think all regulators, whenever they hear someone like me talk about the markets and transitioning away from the market, they think my job, it's going away. And my argument would be exactly the opposite. Your job just got a hell of a lot more interesting. Because uh, what regulation used to be under the vertically integrated regime was an accounting and administrative law intensive process. And now what it's transitioning to is exactly what we've been discussing, which is how do I manage incentives? How do I make incentives of players align with the outcomes that I as the regulator would like to achieve? 
And that is a, you know, a more challenging task, but I think a far more interesting task. And it, if anything, it means, uh, if you like, more work for the regulator, not less. Uh, and so it, it, I guess the, the point I'd want to leave regulators with is your job's secure. It's just you got to adapt like everybody else to the future that's coming. And I will transition that a little bit because a lot of the people that listen, dear listeners, are electric utility staff. And it's similar for power managers. So I manage a power department, right? And a lot of what we do is settlements and stuff like that and contract negotiation. But we're going to have to transition as well into, you know, market, uh, understanding markets and engaging in market development and understanding how they impact our resources and big curves and stuff. So it is going to change a little bit for utility staff as well, especially those in power departments like me. We need new areas of expertise and we need to be enthusiastic about it. You like that? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's great. I, I mean, I think your job your job becomes a heck of a lot more interesting too as to, you know, how do I, you know, I got this risk or I have this, you know, can I realize this revenue stream? I mean, there are, before it was just, look, I get revenues from the, you know, the, you know, from heaven kind of thing. Now it's, well, I can get revenues from selling ancillary services. I can get revenues from selling regulation reserve. I can get, you know, other kinds of uh, revenues. And how do I make the choice? How do I use my resource? And, you know, again, I think it becomes much more interesting and as well challenging and fun. Yeah, this was unscripted and not on the docket, so we can we can cut it later. But I do think one of the other areas in this energy transition is developing depth on the demand side, because you kind of mentioned like most most demand side is inelastic; it is not dispatchable. But part of also what's intriguing for electric utilities and electric utility enthusiasts is trying to better develop that demand side of the curve. Do you? That's what it, like that's an area that I'd love to talk to more. Do you have an expert you'd recommend for that conversation? Me. <laughs> You're on that side of the conversation too. No, no, no. But I mean, it, it, as long as that was, I was out of the, 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 but no, I mean, I've been a shameless advocate for the demand side for more than 40 years. And uh, I'm late I, to the game, I, but I'm here. I, I, I'm late I've to the got, game, but I made it. <laughs> there are plenty, there are plenty of papers on my website that talk about that. And to me, that's a big thing we talk about in this book because the way that I see it is that, um, here is why I'm extremely optimistic is um, if, but the big problem is, is that there has to be a business case for this to occur. And so uh, demand flexibility in a world in which I pay 10 cents for whenever I consume a kilowatt hour, that does nothing for getting the demand side involved. Right. But a, a, a market where I face the risk for marginal consumption up or down at the real time price that creates the business case for buy low, sell high, for shifting. And the other thing that's true is that automated devices are becoming so, so cheap. And so, you know, I have my phone here. I can, I can turn on my phone for an app that can turn off my refrigerator, can turn off this. And moreover, I can program that app to effectively do that with smart plugs. And I can get a lot of demand response. And just to, just to, one of the things I could talk about is we're in the midst right now of running a large scale experiment with a utility in Canada, where what we're doing is we're looking at automated response where we have actually gotten customers to uh, install these devices that can control their appliances. And we're seeing substantial uh, you know, flexibility from those customers with very sort of limited you know, downside to the customer. So 
uh, I think that's the future is, is essentially automated response. But key to make that happen is cheap devices, which we're there on, and the fact that customers are at least at the margin seeing the price signal that essentially gives the revenue stream to fund the investment in the technology. No, that I've, intriguing conversation. It's a great preview where let's talk about it again. Great conversation. This is, I, I felt the energy coming off you. Hopefully you felt it coming from me. This is great fun. Thank you for coming on. Sure. Happy yes. to talk to you. Let's do it again. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks to Professor Wolock for taking the time to answer our questions and explain the energy game. It was incredibly helpful and insightful. If you like our vibe, make sure you don't miss the next episode or other great bonus content by signing up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Otherwise, you can subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. You can also get fabulous merch on Shopify. Just search for Public Power Underground. You don't have to be subscribed to Newsdata to get this podcast, but it sure makes our podcast make a lot more sense. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Some people way smarter than us. Those in the industry with knowledge to trust. We know we aren't perfect. Sometimes it's a bust. But we'll roll on, enthusiasts. Roll on. Roll. Public Power Underground is a production of Klatskin IPUD and News Data. It's brought to you with the support of NWPPA and TEA. TEA is the presenting sponsor for Season 4 of Public Power Underground. The Energy Authority is a nonprofit energy portfolio management company whose mission is to help clients maximize the value of their assets and meet their power supply goals. If you know someone at TEA, send them a note of thanks for their support of Season 4. You can learn more about TEA at their website at teainc.org. That's T-E-A-I-N-C.org. NWPPA has supported public power utilities and other associates in the greater Pacific Northwest for 82 years. The Northwest Public Power Association offers education, training, communications, government relations, and services like RFP and job postings. The Northwest Public Power Association believes in public power. You can find more information about NWPPA at nwppa.org. The views expressed here are own and not are the views expressed on public power underground are our own and not the official views of Klatsk and IPUD. News data or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. Perspective. It's written and directed by Klatskin IPUD's power department led by me, Paul Dockery. And it's edited and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll on Enthusiasts, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch!